Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein for another conversation we have with us today, Grant Wacker. He's the Gilbert T. Rowe Professor Emeritus of Christian History at Duke Divinity School. He's a past president of the American Society of Church History, author of Heaven Below, Early Pentecostals and American Culture, and America's Pastor, Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation. There is a new biography out that he has written called One Soul at a Time, the story of Billy Graham. This is our topic for today. Welcome, Professor Wacker. Thank you very much. All right. Well, this is such a great subject. You've got some great photos in the book as well. We were talking about a few of them before we, before we came on. The book is written, interestingly, in a series of scenes, little episodes in, in the life of Billy Graham that give this extraordinary progress that he made through the 20th century. And before we get into going through some of those episodes, I actually have to read a quotation that you begin at the introduction of the book. This is Bob Dylan writing in 2014. It's wonderful. It's in AA, the, the magazine of the AARP. And here's what he says about Billy Graham. He was the greatest preacher and evangelist of my time. That guy could save souls and did. I went to two or three of his rallies in the 50s or 60s. This guy was like rock and roll personified, volatile, explosive. He had the hair, the tone, the elocution. When he spoke, he brought the storm down. Clouds parted, souls got saved, sometimes 30 or 40,000 of them. If you ever went to a Billy Graham rally back then, you were changed forever. There's never been a preacher like him. He could fill football stadiums before anybody. He could fill a giant stadium more than even the Giants football team. Seems like a long time ago, long before Mick Jagger sang his first note, or Bruce strapped on his first guitar. That's some of the part of rock and roll that I retained. I had to, I had to. I saw Billy Graham in the flesh and heard him loud and clear. Now, do you, uh, uh, extraordinary, do you take that as an accurate and positive endorsement of, of Billy Graham's impact? Yeah. Well. Oh, that quotation, I, it just uh, startled me because uh, I didn't expect it from Bob Dylan. And uh, uh, I know that Bob Dylan went through a, um, an evangelical phase in his life. and There's a lot of controversy about that, how long it persisted or exactly what it was. But uh, still, the fact that someone who is in so many ways outside, uh, outside of what you would think of as uh, Graham's normal uh, audience uh, was, was striking to me. Uh, a couple of things about that quotation was the, the the sense of drama, fire that's in it, and his the way he conveyed the excitement of the moment. And I think it, in some ways it's accurate to say that it was electrifying. Now I don't want to say everybody who went to a grand meeting found it electrifying by any means, but um, but Dylan's uh, lines uh, capture. Uh, that sense uh, that um, Graham conveyed. And if we look at Graham's sermon, they're not electrifying. I think only the most ardent admirer of Graham would say that his sermons were. Uh, But it was the overall impact, the whole context, the way he delivered it. So that's why I thought it was a great quotation. Yeah, good. Well, let, let's go start going into the episodes. You know, you don't spend much time on his early youth, but uh, let me give you the chance. What do you find, do you find anything particular in his family background, in his youth, that led to what was to come? So by, by, at, at an early age, you know, in his 20s, by the time he was 30 years old, he was 
internationally famous by then? Yeah, 1949, Los Angeles Crusade is when he began to gain international fame. And what age was he then? You're right, he would have been uh, 29 uh, at that time, maybe 30, I'd have to do the arithmetic, but he he was very young, Uh, he had a birthday during the course of of that crusade, but he began to be known internationally uh, by the age of 30, and it was seven years later, uh, 1957 in New York, uh, when he became really... um, an international celebrity, might work, uh, icon in many places. So it all happened early. But I go go back to your I go back to your question. What was uh, in his youth? First, the broader context, he was a southerner. We often lose sight of that. Uh, how important it was that he was a southerner, and not only that, a rural southerner. He grew up on a farm, so uh, his uh, roots were plain in that sense. And what followed was, in many ways. Ex- surprising. He went to a very small high school and he didn't have what we call prestige connections of of any sort. The fact that he was a Southerner, though, uh, was important later on because that's exactly when the South began to move. Southerners moved literally by the millions uh, in the 20s into uh, especially Michigan and uh, California. So Graham rode the wave of that uh, Southern expansionism. And I think it's one more thing is that that was an era when being a Southerner was appealing. Uh, later on, questions about the South's role in, in, in the institutionalized racism and uh, remnants of slavery. Later on, they became an issue nationally. But when Graham was fast rising, he, he rode a, a time of a growth of the South and approval of the South, and he was very much aware of it. Um, he he, uh, he embraced it. And one other thing I'll say is that his parents were strict Presbyterians. They were not evangelicals as that word came to be understood. They were Westminster Confession Presbyterians, and uh, Graham was catechized as a as a young man. He learned the creeds and the confessions. He didn't play baseball on Sunday, which was an ordeal for him. So later on, when he talked about his conversion, as I say, there really wasn't much to be converted from. Uh, He lived a pretty straight, upright life. and Well, he did all his life, but um, it it was a a pretty straight arrow upbringing. And uh, so so really, if you looked at him, his, his household at age 15, you wouldn't find anything, at least openly on the surface, to indicate what what Billy Graham would be 15 years later. I mean, it's just it's just sort of sort of a mystery of how he just blossomed in his in his early 20s because he kind of bounced around in college, correct? He did, but even as a student, uh, he was a C student uh, in high school and in college. And uh, you know, and some people say, well, he was a miserable student, or some say he was brilliant, depending on your point of view. There, a, a C in 19. 19- in, in, in 1945, wasn't quite a C. What a C is today. Wasn't quite as bad as it is today. <laughs> it was but the average still, grade, he, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he, he called himself an indifferent uh, student, and, uh, you know, he was no scholar. He was not on the track to become a theologian or any such thing. What happened, I think, well, I know it surprised him uh, later on, and, uh, and, of course, it surprised um, a lot of his peers. I think it's. I think it, I, I have anecdotal evidence that it surprised uh, members of his family too. Like uh, you know, he was older brother and our cousin, and uh, they always called him Billy Frank. He didn't shed the Frank until quite quite a few years later. 
And so it was an element of surprise. You know, how did this happen with Billy Frank? All right, what was use for Christ? What was that? I'll tell you what it was, and then a word about its relation to, um, uh, I'll just say Billy uh, for, for brevity. Uh, though I, I digress here a moment to say that in real life, almost everybody called him either Billy or maybe Mr. Graham. Sometimes, very often, they started by calling him Dr. Graham or Reverend Graham, and um, he stopped them. He said, I'm not a, you know, I didn't go to seminary, and I'm certainly not a doctor. The man didn't get a PhD? No, no. Why do we listen no, to him? No means. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, he was a preacher of the ordinary folk. It's a good question whether uh, uh, Billy made Youth for Christ or Youth for Christ made Billy. You could argue it either way. Now, what it was, was in the early 1940s, a, a group of uh, young men, and they were men. Uh, unfortunately, it was almost totally men in the beginning. They put together what we've come to call a parachurch organization. That is, it was not sponsored by a denomination. It was uh, outside the denominational churches, independent. And they put this together uh, actually first in uh, New York, New York City in the early 40s, and then it moved into the upper Midwest. The aim of Youth for Christ was uh, to provide a worship service or worship context, especially for returned servicemen and service women. And they recognized that when the soldiers were coming back from World War II, uh, they were adrift. Uh, often they were cut off from their roots, their spiritual roots. And so Youth for Christ was designed to reach these young folks at a, um, a vulnerable age. And they did. Youth for Christ was flamboyant. Uh, they, they brought in athletes, uh, actors, actresses, all the you know, lights. Uh, they were flamboyantly dressed. They preached loud and fast and hard. Well, I, 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 have, to, I have to bring up what, what, I, what I mentioned here. There's a photograph. I want everyone, everyone has to, take, has to grab this book and take a look at one of the photographs in the book of Billy Graham uh, leading uh, up on stage for Youths for Christ. And boy, is he, he is a snazzy dresser. That hair is, is gleaming and, and, and shiny. And he's, he's in this pose where he, he's, he's down almost on one knee. He's got a finger out, and he's, he is given the crowd. I mean, the Spirit is passing through him uh, big time. And you've got youth, youth for Christ. And so it, it is, yeah, flamboyance is, is the word here. Well, he had flashy socks at one point, even wore, uh, would wear a tie that would light up. But uh, this was a uh, this was tradition. They wanted entertainment. They wanted to draw these servicemen in, service women too, a smallest, a smaller number of them, but, you know, draw them in, uh, make it exciting. And, um, and it worked. It was, it was tremendously successful. So, so this, this, was this his first big, big stage success? Absolutely. His very first time that, uh, he spoke, uh, to a large mixed, uh, religiously mixed audience was in Chicago, uh, on Memorial day of 1944. And the uh, it was sponsored by Youth for Christ. I cannot remember the name of the uh, of the auditorium, but it was one of the major auditoriums in the city. And uh, he would later talk about it, and he would talk about how scared he was. Uh, he was just trembling. And I mean, there were uh, uh, I, again, I don't recall the exact numbers, but there there were, were probably 
you know, 60,000 people or something like this. Uh, later in the soldier field, there was a 60,000 later, a few months later. But in either either case, we're talking about a very young man speaking to a very large group of people. And he said he was quaking, quaking in his uh, in his boots. And you said that this was a often a very religiously mixed audience, which brought me to, to the point that you do make several times, and that is that he tended just to overlook sectarian differences. He, he, he didn't get... Di- Actually, at one point you say, on, on page 33, you say that, quote, Graham was not an intellectual gladiator. Okay? He didn't really want to argue fine points of theological distinction. And, and that this, 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 you believe, is one of the secrets of his success. Although he got a lot of criticism for this, yeah? Oh, boy, did he have criticism. He had uh, vicious criticism and uh, even death threats. Um, in the uh, organization uh, files, there's a whole fat folder of letters of, uh, of death threats against himself and against his, his wife and his, even his children. So uh, he aroused, uh, attracted great love and also uh, a smaller measure of uh, hatred. But to go back to your original point there, throughout his life, from beginning to end, he felt there was no need to alienate anyone before he preached the gospel. And in this respect, uh, he differs. He differed from his son, Franklin, just, and uh, he's just upfront about it. And I think probably Franklin would be upfront about it too, but uh, Billy sought to reach as many people as possible and to avoid controversial or divisive issues as much as reasonably possible. Uh, now, and that became more a trait as the years went on, least in the beginning, most in the end. And that inclusiveness uh, actually antagonized fundamentalists, especially in the South. Yeah, but but he didn't he didn't want he didn't want a debate. It wasn't that kind of inclusiveness. He 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 preferred not to argue with with people. Yes. To my knowledge, he never had a public theological debate in his entire life, and he lived to almost 100 years old. I don't know if he, if he did, I don't know about it, and it certainly was not part of his temperament. He simply wanted to preach. What, what, then what was his method of winning people over? What was his method of persuasion? It changed. Uh, I would say, first you have to look at, at the, the rhetoric. Um, he prided well, somewhere, somewhere he picked up the statistic that um, the average working vocabulary for the average person was 600 words. Now, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but anyway, that's what he thought. And so he tried self consciously to limit himself to short, pungent uh, words and pungent words and uh, strong verbs. I mean, he made a real effort. Uh, to speak as plainly and clearly as he could and uh, avoided any pretense of learning, uh, which for the most part he didn't have. I mean, he was not a scholar, um, but he, so he's preaching from his heart in plain language. Now, that was one way. Second is he knew he was handsome, and uh, I mean, you know, when he died, Many of the obituaries started by talking about how handsome he was. I have to read a quote. I have to read another quote. This was after his Los Angeles uh, uh, sessions. In a local reporter says this, 
Tall, slender, handsome, with a curly shock of blonde hair, Graham looks like a collar ad, acts like a motion picture star, thinks like a psychology professor, talks like a North Carolinian, and preaches like a combination of Billy Sunday and Dwight L. Moody. He uses few illustrations, no sob stories, absolutely no deathbed stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's all true. I mean, especially in the early years. And I might add there that uh, when a color television uh, came in, people talked about, uh, reporters talked about his blue eyes, uh, especially when he's younger, just these uh, piercing blue eyes. And so that was all part of the image. Now, he knew he was handsome. He didn't talk about it, but uh, his associates knew it. And, uh, uh, well, one of the associates was once asked by a reporter uh, if God pays attention to uh, handsomeness and uh, what role it had on the, um, the associate said, well, it reduces resistance. Okay. So he knew that and he was not afraid to, to dress the role and to uh, be very visible. Okay. So then the, uh, the appeal, uh, besides the simplicity of the language, uh, his personal appearance, uh, the appeal was a lot in the style of the preaching. In the beginning, it was uh, motorized. It was extremely fast and dynamic. You go back and you look at, listen to those early sermons, and it's fair to say he was blazing. He was just blazing away in the gestures and, and the, the fist and all this. He kept people's interest. As the years went on, it slowed down to uh, almost like a fireside chat, but he still kept people's interest by the way he talked. And then finally, uh, he kept the focus on, on salvation. Um, he once said that the text of every sermon was John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. And it's true. I mean, I mean, every sermon ultimately came around to this question of you need to make a choice. And I, I, I say it, uh, in the book, and I feel pretty very strongly about this, that for many ways, for Graham, the real sin, the worst sin, was drifting. Make a choice. And that's why his magazine is called Decision. You know, choice. Don't just float, but make it up or down. Uh, Graham hit it off very well with Henry Luce, the publisher of, of uh, some of the most popular magazines in the, in the country, in the world at that time, including Life magazine. And one reason was, you say, that they shared a very strong anti-communism. Now, Luce got his anti-communism in part by seeing firsthand what happened in China when, uh, when the communists took over. Where did Billy Graham's commun anti-communism come from? What, what was the basis for that? What, what, was it, was it it's the, the godlessness of communism right there? Was that it? Well, first, let's, let's go back to Luce, in that Luce saw it, or its effects, firsthand. I do not see any evidence that Graham did except that in 1957, he made a trip to the Soviet Union. And so he saw, and to Moscow. So, you know, he saw the, re the uh, regulation of life, but there was no traumatic event that, that I know of. So he picked it up in the culture. And uh, he, he saw communism as, uh, as a, a rival religion. And he's very clear about this. He, he, he did. He saw, he saw communism as a religion. Yeah. Uh, communism had its own god. Uh, it wasn't the Christian Jewish God or Jewish Christian God, uh, but it was uh, a, the God of um, a materialistic vision of history. 
that drove it. Graham talked about the commitment, uh, the fanaticism of ordinary people adopting the communist message. And he talked about how they are hard and disciplined and we in America are soft and flabby uh, and lax. That was one of his words in the early days. So there was a, it's ironic, uh, Mark, in that in some ways he, he admired communists and he, he admired their... They're committed. This quite this way. Yeah, yeah. They were disciplined and they were going to take over the world. And, you know, of course, Graham wasn't alone in this. In the early 50s, he, there were millions of Americans who shared his views. No, Whitaker Chambers, uh, he, he saw communism as a religion and he believed that it was going to take over the earth. Yeah. Well, and then Graham talked, uh, you know, very elegantly, both elegantly and eloquently about communist expansionism. And he would talk about, uh, he never used the word commies, but he would talk about commies knifing their way across South Asia and uh, the rivers of blood. Uh, I mean, this was a colorful, apocalyptic language, uh, but he believed it. I mean, this was not just a rhetorical device. He really believed uh, that communists were on our doorstep and it was an atheistic religion um, and we had to deal with it or our civilization would collapse. Mm -hmm. uh, the founding of Christianity today, what, was the, what were the initial goals of Christianity Today. Why, why did he need a magazine, another magazine? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he founded it in uh, 1956, and there were several goals, uh, but they all sort of wrapped up in one. And that the basic one was to uh, give evangelicals, uh, both in the United States and worldwide, a flagpole to gather around. And uh, he thought the evangelical movement was amorphous, it didn't have any central organ. No, and it, no, it had no central organ, had no denominational headquarters. It had uh, the Graham's own radio program was as close as a, a central radio program. So, go back to the word amorphous. It was a movement uh, flowing across the landscape. So, Christianity Today uh, aimed to give evangelicals this flagpole. But it also had a couple other uh, aims, and uh, one is to uh, uh, erect a fence uh, at a certain point around the flagpole. Um, you know who's in and who's out. Uh, so there's a clear set of definitions. Now, as again, now that contradicts a bit something I said earlier uh, when I said he was inclusive. He was inclusive, but within boundaries. Well, he wanted to draw people into uh, close to the flagpole. Uh, but he also recognized that there had to be some markers um, and it couldn't just be a hallmark card movement. Um, so that was the second pur purpose. First, to give people a sense of what, where the center was, and then second, have some, some kind of boundaries as to what's in and what's out. Um, and then finally, uh, and he was quite clear about this, he wanted to challenge the Christian century. Uh, the Christian century had a monopoly uh, on a Protestant religious magazines. It was the normative magazine for the mainline, and Graham was very clear uh, that he wanted to challenge them so that there would be a, at least two normative magazines out there. You mentioned Graham always favored King James? Yeah, um, and that's, that's a very interesting question. For his private devotions, and he was very disciplined on his private devotions, a half hour each morning, 
for his private devotions, he used a variety of translations. And as the years went on, uh, more and more of the evangelical translations. And uh, I think his favorite was the NIV, New International Version. And he was he was at least open to the Living Bible, though he didn't um, um, rely on it very much. However, when he preached, uh, he almost always quoted the King James. And two things to say about that. First is he had a voracious memory. Yeah, he was not a theologian, but he memorized scripture verses, and he could just fire them like ammunition. And he always used the King James because he knew that's what uh, most people were familiar with. And uh, he also had this sense of the beauty, the sheer beauty of the passages. So there are you know, a variety of reasons. And, 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 and he, he used uh, the Bible uh, not only to prepare, but also in preaching. He, he would say, I, sometimes I'll quote as much as, as 100 verses in the course of a sermon. Um, and I'm, I've counted them, and, and he did. He just fired them off. Well, you know, I'm, I'm an English teacher, English literature, and, and I'm just going to say that the King James Version is one of the absolute masterpieces in the entire history of, of English literature, Grant. And, and so it, the, only, the only good thing ever written by, that ever was written by a committee. <laughs> okay, I'll write, I'll write that one down. Yeah, okay. Let me get to a, a criticism of Graham by Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, you quote Niebuhr uh, a few times here. Niebuhr thought that Graham was a little, he, was, he, he thought he was a sincere, personable young fellow, but that he was oversimplifying the, the gospel. And I'm going to quote uh, one particular criticism that Niebuhr made in an issue of Life magazine. He said that Graham's bland message, quote, promises a new life, not through painful religious experience, but merely by signing a decision card. A miracle of regeneration is promised at a painless price by an obviously sincere evangelist. It is a bargain. Do you think those are, are those fair words to apply here? Uh, there's a measure of fairness in it. Uh, I don't think Eber understood the, the heart of what Graham was trying to do. In many ways, Graham was a performer. And he would uh, he would own up to this. Of course, I'm a performer. You know, he said, I've got the greatest product in the world here and I want to sell it. Uh, he'd speak of marketing and he's very upfront about that. He, he was one in his youth. He was a fuller brush salesman. He was. And he saw preaching. Yeah, he saw preaching as the same kind of act that you are bringing people to believe the message that, that you have by the product. I don't think he ever said it quite that baldly, but it was by the product. So. When Niebuhr complained about the lack of theological sophistication, I don't think he understood the genre. Now, Niebuhr is absolutely right in the sense if you uh, read the text of Graham's sermons, um, I mean, they're not like the text of Niebuhr's sermons or Karl Barth or something like that. So Niebuhr is both right um, and, and, and wrong. Niebuhr was one of his constant critics. Uh, and he and Billy had many many critics. Uh, a few years later, uh, Billy Graham got into a bit of a controversy. And it's almost hard for us to imagine today what uh, many Protestants felt in 1960 with the prospect of a Catholic in the White House. How did how did Billy Graham enter into this question? Yeah, I mean, if I may start that with an autobiographical note, I was around in 1960. I was uh, um, 15 years old, and I can remember, I lived in Missouri, and a small town in Missouri, and I can remember the, the intensity of the fear 
of a Roman Catholic president. Uh, uh, and uh, my parents, my school, even in a public school, they talked about the what a terrible result this would be. So Graham shared this in many ways. Uh, no, let me temper that. He shared the fear of a Catholic in the White House. I have to digress for a second. He had a lot of Catholic friends at that point. He had had for uh, 10 years a Catholic uh, clergy supporting him his um, his mission. And so Graham had friends. He was not afraid of Catholicism as a religion or St. Rankin-File Catholics, but he did fear a Catholic in the White House. And uh, the heart of that fear was the same as evangelicals across the country held, and that was, was that the, um, the Catholic president would obey the Pope. Now, today, this all seems ludicrous. I mean, it's just... You know, it tells us how far back all this was. And indeed, you know, I try to tell my students about, you know, the fear of Catholicism. They just sort of, you know, scratch your heads, they can't imagine. But but Graham had this here. Now, as it happens, he came to admire John Kennedy, uh, his intelligence, his uh, integrity, uh, but not at first. When Kennedy became a, a viable political candidate, uh, Graham um, feared uh, what he could do. Yeah. Last question. Uh, let's jump ahead to another president. Billy Graham was fairly easy on Bill Clinton when Clinton's private affairs came came to light, and a lot of people were very angry at, at Billy Graham for not not being harder on President Clinton. What was his What was his position on the Clinton scandal? I, I mean, you you say that Hillary actually consulted with him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fairly easy is a is is a light term. I mean, it was extremely easy on Clinton, and and it's one of the low points of Graham's career. He had several real low points, and uh, one of them was he was on television, and uh, he wasn't thinking. He was on TV, national TV, so much he he got careless and he just started saying stuff. And in this case, uh, I don't remember the exact quotation, but. Uh, he effectively said that um, uh, Clinton was so handsome, and I believe he said so appealing to the ladies, uh, that he fully understood how this could happen. Now, afterwards, he was severely reprimanded by many people, uh, and I'm sure he regretted it, you know, uh, severely. Oh, 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 can I add just one more? Uh, he, he said something to the effect that, that he forgave Clinton. And not a few uh, critics pointed out, well, in A, you're not in a position to forgive anyone, and B, Clinton hasn't asked for forgiveness. So the whole thing was a, it was a fiasco and a, and a dark spot in, his, in Graham's history. Yeah. All right. Well, the, the book is One Soul at a Time, The Story of Billy Graham by Grant Wacker. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you, Mark. I tremendously enjoyed the conversation. 